Welcome. You're listening to WO Voices, a podcast series from Women in Optometry magazine. We're delighted you could join us. Welcome. We're here today with a very special roundtable to talk about diversity issues and overcoming bias in optometry. I'm so pleased to introduce the moderator of this panel. It's Dr. Ruth Shogay, OD, MPH, and FAAO. Dr. Shogay is the Director of Diversity, Equity, Inclusion, and Belonging at UC Berkeley School of Optometry. Dr. Shogay, I'll hand it over to you. Thank you, Marge Lynn. So I'm going to go ahead and briefly introduce our panelists for the discussion that we're going to have this evening. And um, what we're going to talk about is uh, have a discussion on the current social climate and how it impacts the profession of optometry. So both in the class classroom and in the exam room. So we have Dr. Camille Cohen, who earned her, her Doctor of Optometry degree in 2014 from the Pennsylvania College of Optometry at Salis University and received her Bachelor's of Science in Health Sciences from the University of Miami. She has experience in private hospital and retail practice settings and currently manages her own practice, a Pearl Vision franchise in Park Slope, New York. She was named one of the 2020 most influential women in opt optical by Vision Monday with features in Women in Optometry and Eye Care Business Magazine. She most recently earned the Dr. Melvin Ship Young Optometrist of the Year Award at the 2021 NOA convention. We also have Dr. Damaris Raimondi. She is a doctor of optometry at New York City Health and Hospitals Metropolitan Practice Owner at Sir Eye Care, host of her own podcast show, Eyes Up, and volunteers with nonprofit organization Sites on Health. And you can find her on social media as at New York IDOC. Mia Ibrahim is a second year student at SUNY College of Optometry. She received her Master of Science degree from Columbia University's Institute of Human Nutrition and her BA at the University of Pennsylvania, where she double majored in biology and nutrition. Mia has developed a passion for community nutrition work with special interest in obesity and diabetes and their connection to ocular disease. Dr. Sathi Maiti is an ocular surface disease fellow at the Perriman Eye Institute and primary care optometrist in Seattle, Washington. She grew up in Eastern Washington state, completed her undergraduate studies in molecular, cellular, and developmental biology at the University of Washington in 2009 and graduated from the UC Berkeley School of Optometry in 2014. She is passionate about issues regarding social justice and is a member of the Optometric Physicians of Washington's Diversity, Inclusion, and Access Task Force. Dr. Monique Mohammed is currently an ocular disease and primary care resident at the Hudson Valley VA. Upon completing her Master's of Science in Biology from Adelphi University, she received her Doctor of Optometry degree from SUNY College of Optometry. During her time at SUNY, she was involved with the National Optometric Student Association, 
where she served on the executive board all four years. Welcome panelists. This is uh, great to be here with you. And I feel like we've got so much to talk about um, and um, so many questions, so many pressing questions to answer. So we're gonna dive right in. And um, I wanna take the opportunity to, to really just learn a little bit more about each of you. So, you know, what is your story? And, and I'm sure we all have very fascinating and, you know, perhaps slightly long <laughs> stories, but just tell us all a little bit about, you know, what got you here in this moment and what drives you? And so I'll have um, Dr. Cohen start us off. Thank you, Dr. Shoge. I am very excited to be here with everyone here. I, I think that one of the things that brought me to this point in this conversation began really at the start of optometry school at PCO, and I'm sure at a lot of other optometry schools, they required that all first-year students get an eye exam just in case you perhaps never had one, you are introduced to the routine. I went at the Eye Institute for that exam to kind of complete that requirement. And I had on the day my lanyard with my student ID and sat down. I was accustomed to doing an eye exam because I'd done one my whole life every year with my um, optometrist back in Miami. And the third or fourth year, he came in. And at the time, we still did not have electronic records. So he was using the paper charts. And I remember that his head was down and he was just writing the charts and just kind of going through the routine questions um, for a history taking. And one of the things he brought up was, you know, uh, is there a family history of diabetes? I happen to have a strong family history of diabetes. And he said, well, have you been to your primary care doctor this year? Have you been tested for your diabetes? You know, have you had your sugar checked? I said, well, I went to my dentist and my eye doctor. I haven't been to primary care. And at the time I was what my mid twenties, I, I think we all have patients 50 plus who still do not have a primary care doctor and may not go for an annual. But I remember saying that and he scoffed, he still hadn't looked at me. He scoffed and he said, well, don't you think that's something you should take care of if you have such a strong family history? And I said, well, everybody in my family had diabetes type two really over the age of 50. I'm in my mid twenties. Generally speaking, I normally go to the doctor, everything's been fine. And he kind of just cut me off and kept going. So he went through the exam and the preceptor came in. And as soon as she walked in, she said, oh, welcome to the school. Congratulations. That was the very first time he actually looked up and looked at me and saw that I had on the student ID. And I remember, obviously, it stuck with me because it's over 10 years ago, but I remember feeling um, overlooked you know, not seen and, and not really properly cared for. Because if I'm a student, his future colleague, and he couldn't even recognize that I had a red lanyard with a huge ID hanging from my neck, then what is he doing with other patients at the Eye Institute? Are you looking at your patient? Are you engaging? Are you listening? Because I was answering him and he still was not hearing what I was saying. And that stayed with me throughout school and even coming out of school and practicing because I, I'm curious how often we 
may overlook patients, especially if they don't look like us or are different from us. I think this is an important conversation because I've also spoken with colleagues who um, may get a certain level of verbal abuse from patients. And if doctors are treated that way, and I can say that patients possibly are treated this way, where does the profession go? Um, How do we show up um, with integrity to really care for the all people? We've made a pledge to care for all people. And are we doing that? Thank you so much for sharing that story. And, you know, you, you mentioned it's something that happened 10 years ago, yet it still resonates with you and is so powerful. Um, and, you know, the thought that stuck with me as you were talking was, you know, if this is how you treat a peer, you know, a, a fellow student, which you all were at a time, how do you treat a stranger, you know, or how would I expect you would treat a stranger, which, you know, at that point in time would be my mom or dad or my, my grandma, you know, what if they were seeing this person at, at that time? And so then the question you ask is, how do you show up with integrity? And I'll add, add to that humility, right? Because we're talking a lot about cultural competency these days. Um, and as we get more into the, you know, the language of this and, you know, I learn about it every day and, and, you know, subsequently teach about it. The word that we have to use with competency is humility. So how do you show up with integrity as well as humility when you're taking care of people, especially people that don't share the same cultural aspects as you? Thank you for sharing that story um, or sharing your story, uh, Dr. Raimondi. And one thing I would add, um, if I would love to hear everyone also pronounce your name, um, because we're all we all represent what seem to be different backgrounds in terms of uh, ethnicity, ancestry. And so um, if you would take the time to pronounce your name, your first and last name, if you want to add your middle name, feel free, just so we can all hear how it should actually sound. And I'll apologize in advance if I did not say your name correctly. So uh, Dr. Raimondi, um, tell us your name. I, I want to hear you pronounce your name, as well as a little bit about your story. You know, what got you here and what drives you? Thank you, Dr. Shoge. Uh, yeah, my name is Dr. Damaris Raimondi. Um, it could also be pronounced as Dr. Damaris Raimondi, but neither of those names really explain my heritage or my background of what's in a name, right? I think we kind of spoke about that last time. But a little bit about me, um, both of my parents are from Peru, and they came to the United States in the early 80s through the Mexican border. They crossed here illegally. I usually try to learn more about their their journey and what they had to do, leaving everything behind. And, you know, very fortunately for me, they waited many years until they decided to have me. And I was able to, from, from that time, right, I was able to benefit from having both of their attention. I was, I'm an only child as well. So they really dedicated a lot of time into raising me into 
seeing that I was interested in school. Um, I would have a lot of time with adults. And that was a lot of my childhood. But another big part of it, too, is even though I was from here, my parents always reminded me, hey, you know, don't tell anyone that we're undocumented. You know, don't don't say this kind of thing. So that was always a sort of specter behind me. Um, a big part of my story, too, is that from kindergarten through eighth grade, because of the zip code and zoning, again, very lucky that my parents had me uh, and after they kind of settled themselves in this country, I went to predominantly white institutions that whole entire time. So what did that mean? That meant that I got a really solid education, exposure to science, all sorts of extracurricular activities from K to eight. And there was some bullying because I looked different, but you know, I, I learned a lot and I still thrived in school and I loved it and, and I loved learning and all that. So in the ninth grade, I was starting high school and I ended up going to my zoned high school, Newtown High School, which to my surprise on the very first day was 90% Black and Hispanic. Of the children who, I guess, yeah, they were children. Of the children who bullied me, there were actually two of these kids who were in our school. And on that very first day, they were essentially bullied out, a sort of reversal, uh, how the turntables have turned. You know, it was payback, so to speak. And then while I was shy and quiet, I immediately felt like I blossomed that day just by being around people like me. I, I learned that I was beautiful because <laughs> I, before that, I thought I was like, ugly. I don't know, right? And all these different things. I made so many friends. I, I I got to, I hung out a lot at the mall. But what comes with a school that has all of this diversity, all this reality? Zero teaching happened in my high school. I did not learn one single thing. Every single teacher in that school was a glorified babysitter. I don't know any high school level grammar, math, none of that. I taught my I taught myself. I put myself through all the regents. Um, I had to submit my own homework assignments on my own to the teachers. They wouldn't collect anything. It was it was kind of awful. So even though socially I got to know a lot of people and really feel comfortable in my own skin. And I eventually also met my now husband there, right? Like all these wonderful things happened, but I really just felt completely abandoned. And at one point in 11th grade, you know, I, I heard that we had a college office, right? I, I kind of heard that we had one and I went in there and my honors teacher, who's been teaching me since the ninth grade, so right, 11th grade, uh, she's there. She's there manning the, the college office. And then I said, hey, you know, I think I think I want to go to college. Um, do you have any applications here for me? She says, no, Damaris, you have to find those on your own. And I'm like, is this not the college office? And she's like, yeah, yeah, we can help you with CUNY, but that's it. And then 
fortunately for me at the time, my boyfriend, my husband, he's a year older than me. And he had an older sister who had gone through the whole college application process. And they were like, listen, everybody in, in Newtown in the counseling uh, office is useless. And you have to keep trying and you have to apply for yourself and you can apply on your own. You can study for the SATs on your own. I was like, you can study for the SATs. I was the only person in my entire grade who even studied for the SATs. Everybody just thought, and I didn't even study it. All I did was look through the basic college board book once. And everybody else who was my classmates were in shock. They're like, whoa, Damaris, you're a brain because they didn't even look at it. And so I was already noticing this huge difference, like what is going on? And it was confusing. Around that same time, so this was 2007, this was really 2007, around that same time, my dad, he got really sick. He had a stroke and I think I was in school at the time uh, when this happened because our high school was so overcrowded, it was built for a thousand students. And at the time, 4,000 students were there. Um, I had like a 7 a.m. to 2 a.m. shift. Like that was like the time I had to go to school. So I was not home, 2 a.m., 2 p.m., oh my God. <laughs> 7 a.m. to 2 p.m. shift. So I wasn't home at the time when my dad got really sick. Basically, he got sick and he was not able to work at all. And he was our breadwinner. I was very fortunate to have a mom who stayed at home and cooked for me and like, you know, yeah, she like looked over a lot of, uh, after me. She still does, but, but it was helpful. It kept me out of trouble. And by that point, I wasn't really thinking about getting a summer job, but then I'm like, you know what? Like, let me get a summer job. Let's do this. And I really wanted a job like my boyfriend's sister had at the time. Like she was a, fr she was a front desk uh, receptionist somewhere and I was on it. Nobody wanted to hire a 17-year-old with no experience at that time. It was just nobody wanted me. Nobody in the mall wanted me. And then I asked around, like, hey, how do you, how do you guys have these nice jobs? And they said, oh, it's through, um, it's because someone in my family knew someone. So I finally asked my dad, like, hey, who do you know? And he's like, well, you have a cousin who's a restaurant manager in uh, a Mexican restaurant in Midtown like, let's go. So he called him up. And this was finally my big break. Like I had applied to so many jobs. I applied to Dwayne Reed, all these different things. Uh, VIM sneakers didn't want me. So I'm like, all right, let's go here. Let's go to this restaurant. And it was on a uh, 49th and second, I believe something like something like that. And we went there and it was like, oh my God, such a delicious lunch, a beautiful restaurant. And, um, yeah, and, and it was a really beautiful restaurant. And then my cousin said, you know what? You're going to be a bus girl here. And you're going to work the lunch shifts and we'll see how it goes. As a bus girl, the job was incredibly difficult. And it was really physically taxing. And day after day, this happened. I wasn't really sure how, how, to, how to manage this, what to do. And suddenly, I had a light bulb moment in where I uh, said, you know what? The only way out is through studying. That's the only way that I'm going to get out of this because uh, what else am I going to do? I'm just going to keep being like a waiter and that that's all I would do. So from that moment on, I just really, I went crazy. 
I started handing handing in even more uh, projects that the teachers never asked for. I looked through their syllabus, and then I ended up having a perfect GPA for um, for uh, in my senior year of high school, which is what saved me. And unfortunately, I've tried to I've tried to get the other students right, like some of my friends too. I was like, hey, here's all the application that you need to do, and that they didn't apply. So it's not just the knowledge that you need, but also the action that you need to take too. And that was my really big shift in terms of being where I am today. And little by little, right? Like I was able to get out of that cycle. Unfortunately, a lot of, none of the other, of my other high school friends, even now, like kids who go to that school, it's the same thing. I've tried to reach out to them. They are not interested in, these teachers are not interested in other than being glorified babysitters. And that's why it's been so difficult to get us into levels of higher education and in places of representation too, because they are are already counting us out as young as 14. Thank you so much, Dr. Raimondi. And, you know, I think some of the, the really important parts that, you know, that I kind of made mental notes about is the importance of mentorship and social capital. And so the fact that you had to be so self-motivated, find all of your own resources, and you know, this is in the school setting, not even to, to talk of in the home home setting of, you know, perhaps your your parents at that time didn't have the capacity, you know, not the intelligence or ability, but the capacity, because they're dealing with their own own, you know, issues to help you in that sort of way. So having people who will mentor you appropriately, having people who will educate you appropriately, um, which is all part of our social capital construct. So social capital just being, you know, what are are the human resources that are in our lives that create these opportunities for us? And, And not everybody comes to the table with, you know, any kind of social capital and, and, some of us come to the uh, table with an abundance of social capital. So, you know, for sure, congratulations on um, being self-motivated and um, and being able to find a way out of, you know, that circumstance, which is part of how you got here. It's, you know, kind of trial by fire. You are sharpened by the experiences of your life and that, I'm sure makes you very motivated and hopefully um, allows you to motivate other people. And I, you know, hope we can do better with finding good teachers and educators um, at that uh, educational level, you know, at primary school level, which is where um, interest in science and math and, and those kind of things really starts to blossom. So thank you again for telling us about your story. Okay, I'm going to switch gears and turn it over to Dr. Sathi Maiti. Thank you so much. I'm really grateful to be part of this panel. Um, you said my name perfect. It is pronounced Sathi Maiti, like the word Maiti. Um, so my background, I'm Indian American. My parents immigrated from India in the 80s, um, uh, but I was born here in the States. So I grew up um, with this kind of 
acknowledgement from my parents and growing up with the idea of, you know, America is a meritocracy and that if you just work hard and you study, you can achieve the American dream, you know, and that they they came to this country with seven dollars in their pocket um, and that if, you know, other groups didn't achieve success, then it's kind of their fault. You know, they had all the opportunities available to them and they just didn't grab them. And so for me, a lot of it has been kind of unlearning (laughs) these things I learned growing up that was like, yeah, you came to the U.S. with $7 in your pocket, but also a graduate degree, you know, and a bachelor's degree and the ability to to get a good job um, soon. Um, You know, and other things, I feel like a lot of my community growing up sort of felt like racism was kind of an inherent aspect of immigrating somewhere like you're a different color you look different you speak different you dress different people are going to be racist to you that's just how it's going to be just deal with it put your head down work hard you know and overcome it um and i think it's really been some of us younger in the younger generation realizing like no we don't have to do that like we don't have to put our heads down like we should acknowledge that this is real and it affects us as well as other communities and um, understanding, you know, some of the realities of structural discrimination, systemic racism, and, you know, how much historical events and actions are still impacting us now. And that, you know, the American meritocracy idea is not really, it's not reality. You know, we don't all have the same resources um, and opportunities um, as, you know, maybe we're taught is the is the the truth. And so for me, a lot of this has just been trying to see, you know, where is my role here? Where can I improve things for other women of color? Um, you know, and not just Indian Americans or South Asians, um, everyone, you know, I think as, as doctors, we worked very hard to get where we are and, and we know, you know, what things we had to fight against discrimination. You know, for me, it's been, a lot more things like microaggressions versus overt discrimination or racism um, and not even have being the term for microaggressions when I was younger and, and just knowing like there's something wrong about this, but I don't even have the words to explain it until, you know, now that we can sort of realize like, oh yeah, the, those things those teachers said to me or like put us in different groups and stuff like that. None of that was okay. Um And so kind of acknowledging those things. And so, you know, for me, what got me kind of to to this discussion, this panel, I think is acknowledging, you know, the reality of racism and bias, discrimination and optometry. It's certainly there. I think we all know it's there. Um, And how do we get everyone else in our profession to realize that it's there and something that needs to be addressed I think we've done a lot of work on this in the last year. You know, Dr. Shoge's position at Berkeley that was created. I think a lot of the schools have been doing good work on this. Um, But we really need to, you know, figure out a way to communicate with our colleagues that this is a real issue that needs to be addressed and that it's not something that's just going to be fixed by the schools. You know, it's not just... Uh, the schools doing all the work, we as doctors need to be putting in work as well to improve, you know, both the numbers in terms of uh, diversity in our profession, but also I think more importantly, that inclusion, inclusion, belonging aspect, like we can add 
students of various races and whatever into our classes, but if they don't actually feel comfortable, that isn't really solving the problem. You know, I think many of us didn't necessarily feel at ease in our optometry programs. You know, I was one of only a couple of South Asian students. We had very few few Black students um, or Latinx students when I was at Berkeley. Um, And they don't even do like statistics about South Asians. We just get lumped into Asians. I don't even know what the demographics, you know, of how many South Asian students or doctors there are. Like you can't even look it up. Um, And so I think, you know, acknowledging that we need to change the demographics of our faculty and particularly higher up positions in optometry I believe still like 88% of optometry faculty are white men and certainly like the board of trustees and the AOA or all the higher ups and all the organizations are, are still white men. How do we break down those barriers? Um, I, you know, I'm trying to get into like clinical research and the KOL world, the speaking world. Those are still really dominated by white men too. Um, and, you know, it's hard to find mentors and things in that area. Thank you, Dr. Mighty. And, you know, it's interesting. And I feel like maybe I'm just realizing we all may be first generation Americans, I believe, including myself, which, you know, I think definitely adds another layer to our experiences, as well as the conversation, um, which I don't think we've had in optometry much yet. Um the uh, immigrant experience, the first generation experience, and what that all means and what do we add to the conversation when we're talking about race and racism, bias and bias awareness and privilege. And you, you know, you touched upon that, you know, both your parents immigrated from India. And I think it's super important that you touched upon, you know, this idea that if you want it, you can get it. And having to unlearn that messaging, which is, I think, something that a lot of first gen Americans hear. Like, well, you, I, you know, you have no excuse because I came from a whole other country across body or bodies of water. And, you know, I we we kept the lights on and we provided. And so you basically just have to be a student and excel. And if you can do it, anybody can do it. So this I, this this bootstrap ideology or meritocracy, which is the, the actual uh, way to name it, um, but having to check ourselves and in so doing, check our parents, which if you have immigrant parents, I, I'll leave it at that. <laughs> but essentially saying, okay, mom and dad, but between the two of you, you have seven degrees. So um, that is an incredible starting point that not everybody has. And again, everyone's, you know, even our first generation story here is going to be different. Our parents' immigration story here are, are different. But beginning to unlearn the messaging that we hear as children and young adults, which is such a big part of the process in terms of awareness understanding the biases that we have and how that affects 
our uh, patient care experience and the way we take care of people. Um, so I'm super glad that you shared your story and allowed us to have a, a conversation about that um, and bring that to people's awareness, people's awareness, because it's it's such an important, important aspect. And it's something that I think it's important to understand that we all have to do that work. And I know a lot of times it feels like the conversation um, perhaps is sounding like to our peers who identify as white as, oh, I have to do that work. No, this is all shared work that we're all doing and we're um, all holding each other accountable in this work. But I think, um, you know, that's just a great, great story and a great point. So thank you so much for sharing. All right, Dr. Muhammad, Dr. Monique Muhammad, if you can tell us a little bit of your story and what motivates you. Thank you, Dr. Shoge. And I just want to say thank you to Dr. Cohen. Um, she's been my mentor for the past like few years, and I'm just very grateful for her. She's always including me in these conversations because she knows this is something that's um, very important to me, but also something that I'm very shy to initiate. So I'm very grateful for her to always think about me in that way. Um, so for me, my name is Dr. Muhammad. Um, I'm also first-generation American. My mom is from Jamaica, and my dad is from Trinidad. And I think just as you were saying, um, Dr. Shoge before about just that pressure, I feel like for me, at least all throughout my education, there's always been, you know, in the moments when I wanted to complain first, if anyone knows any Jamaican, we are very prideful, very proud, very, we can do everything. Um, and my mom all throughout my education was very much like, you know, you can't complain about things because you should be so grateful. She would always tell me, and even something that I still think to myself when I'm finding myself complaining about things, um, whether it's in the profession, whether it's just in personal life, it's, you know, there's so many people who in my position would love to be able to have a job, would love to be able to have a doctorate that even if you're having a bad day, you can't complain about it because there's so many people that don't have that, that wish they could just be over here um, in America. So um, for me, I think a huge part of where I am today is one, like my parents are I mean, they've pushed me harder than I think, I mean, anyone that I've gotten. I think those are my number one mentors in life, just because they've been there when I needed someone to, you know, cry on their shoulder. When, when first year optometry school was rough, because it was rough, there were many moments where I was just like, I can't do this. This is really stressful. And it was just, you know, my mom and my dad pushing me through and telling me that, like, you know, there's, they've worked so hard to get here. Um, you know, they work so hard to provide this life for me that I'm able to be educated and, and able to pursue education without having to worry about, you know, things in my personal life. So I think, that, you know, for me, that was a huge part of where I am here. But in terms of optometry, I definitely feel that as I went through my education, there became less and less people that looked like me. And I didn't realize how much I really needed that camaraderie of other people that looked like me to kind of get me through until I got to optometry school. And realizing when I was in optometry school that I was the only one that looked like me in my class. Um, that was rough because for me, like I've always loved my culture, but if I could be honest, I haven't really um, expressed my appreciation for like my Trini and Jamaican heritage because I've always felt like I've had to explain it to people that don't look like me. And that's always just caused me stress. And, and it still does because I feel that it's stressful for me to have to explain parts of myself that almost feels that people are asking more of amazement versus just 
understanding and acceptance. Um, and for me, that was something that I experienced most of the time when I was in optometry school where, you know, if it was my parents' anniversary once I can remember. And um, I was talking to one of my colleagues who they don't look like me again. Um, so I was expressing to them like, oh, this is my parents' like 38 wedding anniversary. And they were like almost shocked that I, my parents had been married that long. And I think it more so came from um, my mom is black and my dad is Indian, but he's from Trinidad. So I think a lot for me, honestly, came um, in optometry school. It just came from really feeling alone. And if I could be honest, even in the optometry world outside of Dr. Cohen and outside of other colleagues that I've met, it still can feel, um, it can still feel very lonely because you don't feel like you're in a very inclusive environment. And I think for me, what's been really important is connecting with students that represent um, rep represent the similar cultures that I come from, as well as other students that I know need that support to kind of get through. Um, thankfully, through the NOA, which I was a part of when I was at SUNY, I was able to connect with some students that are currently still at SUNY just to provide that support, because I do think that mentorship is key to making it through and, and also just to having these conversations um, I think this conversation is very important that we're having and being able to have this conversation on a deeper level and including other people to making it more inclusive, I think makes the optometry world in general more um, inviting and more, more enjoyable to want to be a part of. Thank you so much, Dr. Muhammad. Um, and, you know, I too have a Jamaican mother, so I know about the Jamaican moms. My mom is Jamaican, my dad is Nigerian, so... Um, you know, we all, in terms of race, identify as Black, but our cultures couldn't be more different uh, between the three. Dr. Cohen wants to jump in, so please, Dr. Cohen. Yes, I just wanted to kind of follow up. I love what Dr. Maiti and uh, Dr. Raimondi and Dr. Mohammed what they brought up about um, having immigrant parents. Both of my parents immigrated from Jamaica and Dr. Maiti really spoke to my spirit because um, I think um, having my parents kind of reiterate that same um, speech of, you know, there isn't any excuse, you know, you, you have, you, you can do anything and it's just about working hard. Um, but my parents were both teachers and, and came to this country with their master's in education um, and then went on to further their education while here. And yes, there is that level of guilt, I think, of what Dr. Muhammad brought up, because, you know, for them, they did not grow up wealthy in Jamaica. And, you know, I remember distinctly uh, my father saying, I had to burn kerosene lamps, you know, to study. And do you understand that, what that's like? Do you know what it's like to have to, um, um, you know, go without shoes sometimes? And so there's, I don't want to hear that you're tired. There is no tired, right? And how does that then manifest? I think for us, it, it motivates us. But I, one of the things I'm hearing from all of us is that there's also a guilt that follows you because do you ever know when to stop? or when to pause or to rest or to value yourself because there is no excuse. You should be doing more. And, and it's not just doing well, but doing the best, right? Um, that was always something that really bothered me. I remember getting my first C in high school and it was one of the things that bonded me to my now best friend is that she came in the bathroom and she came in to cry too because I was like, I'm a failure. I'm a failure. I got a C. I don't understand what to do. Um, who knew later on, I'd be happy to see a C from time to time, 
But in high school, I just felt like if I come home with less than an A, um, I can't come home. Like, how am I going to explain this? And sometimes how overwhelming that pressure is. I think that is something that you hear a lot with a first generation uh, student and child. So I, I'm, I'm really grateful for this conversation because that is is something that really isn't spoken of enough and how within it, it it's there's something to be admired about the work ethic but I think what we also have to unlearn is this uh, need to constantly sacrifice our well-being thank you so much for sharing that dr Cohen I you know it's we could do a whole segment on well-being, and maybe we will one day. Well, we can write a note on that and what that looks like exactly, um, um, and how we help those coming behind us achieve it maybe a little bit faster than than we did. Because again, it 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 our parents made it feel like it was kind of an overindulgent thing. Like, what do you need to take care of yourself for? You're alive, aren't you? You had three meals. You have a bed and a roof to to, to, to sleep in and under. Um, but there's more to it than that. So you're absolutely right. And thank you so much. Last, but certainly not least in terms of introductions, we have Miss Nia Ibrahim. Go ahead and tell us your story, Nia. Thank you, Dr. Shoge. And before I start talking about my story, I kind of just wanted to add, um, to what Dr. Cohen said. Um, I was lucky that I, I wasn't really pressured too much from my parents to always do well. They just, tried, you know, expected me to do my best. But I was also lucky that they took me a lot back to Ethiopia, which is where my family is from. And during those summer trips, I saw extreme poverty, right? nothing like what I would see here. Um, so, you know, the neighbors in my parents' neighborhood uh, would sleep outside, uh, would beg for food always. There were people without clothes. And so this really took a toll on me. And so that's where the guilt came from for me. Um, and so whenever I came back, you know, uh, I had I was on scholarships uh, for my schools, uh, both in high school and in college. Um, that guilt also came from there. So I felt this pressure to do really well, especially as a Black student. I, I felt that I had to be perfect in all of my classes to prove that um, I can make it to where I wanted to make it. Um, so a little bit about my story. I think a big part of what brings me here today is my experience as a patient, both my family's experience um, and my own experience. So um, for as long as I can remember, and even now, um, I get very nervous before going to doctor appointments. Um, and that started because of the racism that I would see, especially towards my mom, who would accompany me to my doctor's appointments. Um, the way that they talked to her, the faces that they made when they talked to her and me as well, really traumatized me growing up. And so I developed this fear of doctors. Um, and so even before, like two days before my doctor's appointments, I would start to get really nervous and maybe pray that I'd get a black doctor or somebody who didn't dislike me because my family was black or my parents were an immigrant um, or because I wore a scarf. Um, and so that continued for many years, even now. Um, but after a vision screening that I failed in fourth grade, I had, I went to the optometrist and my optometrist had, uh, happened to be a Muslim doctor who also wore a scarf. So this was the first time that I saw a doctor who looked like me. 
Um, and so that got me really excited. And that's when I started thinking about optometry as a profession for myself, because I started, I saw myself in her place, whereas I, I never did that before. I was always terrified before going to my doctor's appointments. And so she became a mentor for me, and she still is a mentor to me. Um, and I think because of that, I started, you know, looking into optometry school, trying to figure out how I can get there. Um, and I started working on that process. So, you know, working really hard in my classes, on my prerequisites, it still was not easy. So I faced bullying from my teachers, especially in elementary school, a really hard time during um, some of my programs that I was in. Um, but because of the support that I had from my parents and some of my mentors, I was able to get through it. Um, and it took me two, two tries to get into uptime, two cycles to actually submit my application. Um, and so I think that's a big part of why I'm here today. I really want that process to be easier for other students who are interested in optometry. Um, and I think that starts with the application process or even you know, starting to think about optometry and considering it as a profession. Um, so I'm involved in tutoring now. Um, so tutoring uh, minority students who are considering optometry, kind of telling them about my experience, helping them with the OAT. And I'm hoping that that will ease the way for some of my future colleagues into the um, profession of optometry. Thank you so much, Nia. Um, I, I particularly was interested when you said, not until you saw a doctor who looked like you and including a female doctor who wore a scarf. And if you don't mind, um, you know, because I always want people to know the right way to, to say things and address, you know, not just names, but how we wear certain clothing. So is it hijab? Exactly, it's hijab. Okay. Um, so not until you had an experience with a doctor who was your doctor, who looked like you, including a woman who wore a hijab, um, did you feel comfortable? And it just really goes back to the notion that representation matters. And really, that's why we're all here, is to talk about this need for representation, to talk about um, you know, how we're doing as a profession so far, and perhaps some of the things that we need to, to continue to do. Where do we go from here? Thank you, Dr. Shoge, and thank you, panelists, for your conversation. It was wonderful to hear these connections being made as you were talking, and I suspect that as others listen to your conversations, they will have those connections with you as well. Thank you for listening. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to be a part of WO Voices, please let us know. You can find us on the web at womeninoptometry.com, on Facebook at WO Magazine, and on Twitter at WomenODs. We'd love to hear from you.